Welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us today. Today we have on the Tennessee Volunteers head coach, Tony Vitello. Tony arrived on Rocky Top following four seasons as an assistant coach and recruiting coordinator at Arkansas. His rise to the head coaching ranks also includes stops at Missouri and TCU. After leading the program back to the NCAA tournament in 2019, Vitello and the Vols looked poised to take another step forward in 2020 after a strong start to the season. The Vols were ranked as high as number 11 in the nation after a 13-0 start to the year and were 15-2 heading into SEC play before the season was halted and eventually canceled due to COVID-19. Prior to the season being canceled, Tennessee led the country in total runs and runs per game while ranking second in home runs, slugging percentage, walks, and on-base percentage. On the show, we discuss what he looks for on the recruiting trail, how to get players to own their career, and we go over what they do for competitions almost every day and how that propelled them to leading the country in runs in 2020. Here is Tony Vitello. Tony, welcome to the show. Thanks a ton. Greatly appreciate you having me on. Of course, of course. And and I was, you know, just just going through some different programs that with head coaches that I haven't had on, and and I just honestly cold emailed you, and I uh, I know that one of one of our minor leaguers has has talked highly of you. Uh, whenever we were in spring training, I you know I'd asked him where he signed, and and he said Tennessee, and it was just glowing about all the different things that you guys had going on, and. Then I was just, you know, randomly going through just some some statistics at on NCAA.com, and I saw that you guys led the country in runs before we were all put on halt. And so I was like, man, I've got to get uh, Tony on and, and talk about how they did that. But uh, before we get too far into that, I know that I would like to learn a little bit more about you. I know you've been to some really uh, dynamic stops, and you guys have done a great job. But for our listeners who want to get to know you a little bit better, uh, what is a little bit about about your ba- uh, baseball background, and then why did you decide to get into coaching? Sure. Well, um, they're both kind of one and the same. My, my dad was a, a high school coach in St. Louis, the Smet Jesuit High School, and um, several big leaguers came out of there. I was not one of them, uh, but Billy Miller, who helped break the curse with the Red Sox, he was a batting champ that year ahead of Jeter and Manny Ramirez. He played for my dad, and, and now actually he's helping out a high school down there in Arizona coaching. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, being around it all the time kind of whetted the appetite, but the lessons my dad tried to get to all of his players, including myself, about um, competing and working hard and the rewards that it can give you didn't really sink in uh, till much later than now that I look back on it. I wish they would have get into it. I was able to kind of, you know, get faster, get a little stronger, put on some weight. And I went from an NAI school in Mobile, Alabama, Spring Hill, to a junior college at Merrimack, uh, where we competed against Pujols and Burley and other big leaguers that year. It was, it was a great experience. And then eventually walked on in Missouri. And again, kind of tied into my dad's job. I think I get that opportunity unless Coach Jameson and his staff kind of know, hey, we might want to be nice to this guy because his dad's got some, some players coming up. Uh, so I got that opportunity to basically be a walk on that was told, Hey, any, any day now we could tap you on the shoulder and tell you, you know, that's it. We don't need you anymore. And, uh, fortunately that day never came. 
and it extended into a three-year career at Mizzou and then further into an eight-year career coaching at University of Missouri, which was one of my first stops, as you mentioned. I've done credit for being some good players, but starting with Missouri, and it's kind of gotten better from there, um, it's been four schools that are fairly easy to recruit to. Wonderful. And yeah, I was, uh, you know, looking, looking through your bio a little bit, I was noticed that you did uh, get the chance to recruit and uh, get some really good players on campus at a couple of stops. And, and I think that it's, it said that you were one of the only people in the country who had two golden spikes winners that one was a pitcher and one was a hitter. And Aaron Crow and uh, Andrew Benintendi were, was that those two? Yeah, yeah. Aaron okay. was undefeated as a junior, and he actually outdid Scherzer statistically as far as junior year goes. Um, and an all-star with the Royals. And then I actually, I've been practicing social distancing, but I just watched those UFC fights on Saturday with Andrew, and um, both those guys are, are are incredible competitors, and uh, it was pretty cool to be around them during those feats in college. Right. That's right. That's awesome. And so, yeah, it's. It's a uh, man. Obviously, you're a dynamic recruiter, and I, I think that that shows in, in some of the classes that you guys have put together lately. But I do want to rewind a little bit because you were you mentioned that, uh, and this this may be you as coach speak. You know, looking back and seeing um, what you know wh- when you were a walk on. But it, did you being a walk on like that and really trying to earn your way every single day? Does that does that change the way that you treat walk-ons and guys that are on the bench now? Because for me, I mean, I, I'm looking at, at a guy that if that was my career, which it may well have been uh, if I had walked on anywhere, uh, but looking at that and then going, man, I, I, I remember how that felt every single day, and, and then I want to make sure that these guys are treated well because in a lot of essence, they're the glue to a program, and they are what helps drive the program forward. They're paying their entire way, and they're grinding every single day, just like everybody else. Uh, do, does it, do any of those thoughts come to come to mind whenever I ask you about that? Uh, uh, they hit home tremendously, and it actually starts not just with coaching, but with recruiting. Um, I feel like um, you know TCU went on that run for three years, and uh, I was responsible for only one of the two, but two of the best players in that whole run where they went on the world series three years in a row were walk-ons. And, um, I, I think it's helped me, uh, recruit those type of players, uh, because I can speak on it a little more, uh, you know, as it relates to my own personal experience. And then coach definitely does, uh, probably one of the worst times I've ever erupted as a coach was when I was accused of playing favorites, uh, by one of the players. And mm-hmm. I, to set the record straight was say secretly if I'm at home sharing for anyone, it's probably the list of guys that aren't even getting to play because I was those guys. And I'm I'm open for everyone to get their moment of glory. I mean, uh, you know, to Andrew won the Golden Spikes Award as an individual award. So it wasn't as important to him as you think. And and hopefully that I'm saying that the right way. Um he, he's a tremendous team player. But yeah. You know, not everyone can have that moment where they're they're recognized. There's only one Golden Spikes Award more every year, but there's a ton of different moments through each year where, you know, a guy like me, I never did it, but uh, let's say I hit a home run, just a home run in any game against another Big 12 opponent, that would have been my Golden Spikes moment. And, um, you know, 
anyone's capable of doing that, whether it's making a travel roster and he didn't necessarily expect to or whatever. And so it's affected how I've, you know, cheered for, coached for, worked with those guys, but even more so really recruited them and, and became fans of them, so to speak, when scouting those type of players that you maybe see that potential or you see some work ethic or things like that. Um, and, and really it's led to some classes that have a lot of depth. I know when we first got there, because we felt like there wasn't a lot of depth, some people said, whoa, you guys are racking up some big numbers in recruiting classes. Well, we knew we were going to get hit in the draft, uh, as all SEC teams are. But a lot of these guys are non-scholarship guys. We're under the same guidelines as every other school, 11.7 on scholarship. But um, we have some incredible guys that are on their own dime at our place competing. I love that. And and while we're talking recruiting, let's go ahead and jump jump into kind of what you're looking for. Because again, you you've been a successful guy, and and at, at several different stops that uh, that I know that 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 people would recognize in, in TCU and Arkansas and now Tennessee, and and you've continued to be able to do that uh, at every program. And uh, a, a lot of times, I mean, obviously those program those are really good programs, and that helps. But uh, you got to sell the kid, uh, and then you've got to find your fit and what you're looking for. And so I, I think for, especially for our college guys, they can't, they probably won't be able to do it exactly like you because you've got an eye for this, but are there any particular traits that you're looking for, especially if there's any players listening that you're like, Hey, I go, to, I go to a game and this is what I'm looking for, or I go to a game and he, ha- and this player has to check these boxes. Or if I go to a game and I see this, like that, that's a yellow flag for me. It may not be a red flag. You can talk about red flags if you want, but that may be a a box that I'm like, eh, maybe. You know what I mean? So, so what are some different things that you like right. or or don't like, and just kind of walk us through that process? Sure. Well, subconsciously, just just thinking along with your question, I think I probably have something embedded in my head that really likes guys that still have room for growth or have some projection. And I I think we all have that when we scout people think, you know, and whether they're right or wrong, it doesn't matter. You you don't love baseball. If you don't think you're at least good at seeing some things and correcting some things. Um, Obviously there's some out there that are better than others, but it's a great feeling to see a guy and like him, but also say, man, if he would just do this with his front foot, or if he put on a little more weight, or if he got a little quicker first step, or a better stance as a catcher. And so when you see a talent, but also there's room for growth uh, in whatever area it might be, because there's several that, options that it could exist, um, I, I think it gets you excited. And so that's something that I've always looked for. And, and again, maybe that goes back to personal experience. We all played with a guy that maybe was the first to get hair under his arms or what, for whatever reason, he was bigger than everyone when he was younger and he was killing it or, or tearing it up. And then he slowly faded and, you know, maybe didn't play in college or never made it to the big leagues when in sixth grade, everybody was saying, man, this guy's the next Bryce Harper or whatever it is. So I, I think that's something that's kind of been embedded in my brain, whether it's a positive or, or not, but, Overall, that question gets asked of us more than any by parents. When you're out there, you know, it's always, hey, I don't want to bother you. You know, you're, you're, you're watching games in 100-degree heat or whatever. But what are you guys looking for? And I don't think any of us have a clear-cut, 
write it just on the back of a note card answer. Um, I think there's several things, but I do know all of us want to keep food on the table, <laughs> but even more so, all of us want to go to Omaha. So th- there's a lot of, if, if you reflect back on a team that either could have went to Omaha or did go to Omaha, there are a lot of pieces to the puzzle there. Um, Arkansas almost won a national championship. They had Blaine Knight, who was undefeated as a pitcher, um, and he was their Friday clear number one. But they also had a really good lefty change of speed guy uh, that was their number two guy. And they had a really good defender at short uh, who maybe didn't hit a bunch of home runs, but they had a DH who hit a bunch of home runs. So, um, you know, it's kind of like a movie that Tom Cruise or whoever your favorite movie star is in. Uh, there, there's obviously got to be a guy that goes on the poster, but there's got to be a guy who is in charge of the music and costumes and lighting. And there's got to be a director and, um, so there's a lot of roles that got to be filled. And if you can bring some positives to the table, then we're interested. Um, if you're just a right-handed hitter who gets a lot of base hits for your high school team, um, unfortunately, that's not a rare thing. So it's got to be something else. Like you also can play a variety of positions or you're a great student or you're known as a phenomenal teammate um, or no, you don't let anyone outwork you or you're getting a lot of hits, uh, not necessarily hitting for power, but you're a skinny kid that's got a lot of room to, to pack some muscle on your build. Uh, so hopefully that, that kind of rambling tangent makes some sense that you got to have a resume right. in the real world, but also in baseball, that you could literally slide in front of the coaching staff and say, here's why I can help your team. And, um, you know, for some guys, it's, hey, I'm a top 100 recruit and I'm a superstar. And uh, for other guys, it might just be I'm a second baseman and I'm not very highly rated with perfect game or PDR, um, but I'm a great student so I can get academic money or, you know, I'm a good runner. I might be able to be a pinch runner early on if I'm not playing a lot for you. No, I love that. And and I think that, I mean, it's the more that, and this is something that, that personal belief of mine defensively. I think the more versatile you are now with the amount of shifting that teams are doing, I think that that just being able to play one position like it used to be, like, you know, we recruited shortstops because you could, uh, or a lot of people said that you would recruit short, people would recruit shortstops because you could just really put them at each position. But I think that that's kind of, you know, I think that's kind of true now, but I think the more positions you've played uh, over the last couple of years and in your career, I think that's only helpful, especially if you can hit. I mean, obviously, if you could play a pretty good defensive position, but again, with the amount of shifting, are you seeing that too? And, and are you kind of looking for some versatility like that? Yeah, thank, you know, you started saying that, and I, what popped into my head was thank God for Ben Zobrist, which is ironic because he right. went to Dallas Baptist. He's a guy with a strong faith, way better faith than I have, but uh, also he's that first guy that really kind of made it click, um, you know, that this is a positive. In the big leagues, it for whatever reason, it used to be frowned upon to not really have one position that you master. But um, he was, you know, and there are probably a few others prior to that, but he was kind of the poster boy, um, in my opinion, and other coaches too have talked about it of, is that, you know, that's more prevalent these days. There's a variety of reasons why you'd mix up the lineup and this guy's a hybrid. And, um, you know, the other reason, thank God for Ben Zobers, is I was at that game seven and actually seated right next to third base. 
So I saw him tuck that one in down the line and my dad's from Chicago. So he was, uh, he was a pretty big hero that day for a lot of people, including us. Well, that's awesome. Uh, St. Louis is kind of a, a sneaky, really good hub for baseball coaches. I know I've, I've had a couple of them on and, and it seems like, uh, that comes up a lot. So that, that's really interesting. And, and I think it's, it's awesome that your dad is a high school coach and, uh, and has been for some time. But, uh, as, as far as your next steps, I mean, so you were an assistant coach and then, then you got the head coaching job at Tennessee. Like, uh, this is just me imagining I've never been a head coach, but I'm imagining, okay, I get that call. I accept the job. I'm so excited. And then that, that excitement goes into, okay, what do I do next? Like, what are my first steps when it, like to make sure I get this rolling, right? I want to have a system in place to where, uh, I want these things to happen. And I, I don't know if you thought about it like that. That may just be my, my way of thinking about it. But what were some of the, some of the different things that you did, uh, when you first stepped on campus or right before you stepped on campus, just to make sure the tone was set and you had the ball rolling in a direction that you wanted it to go? Sure. Well, he, here's something I did. And, um, you know, I do think it's actually a good piece of advice. If I was for some reason to restart a career, uh, you know, one of my former players was, hey, I'm about to start my own program. Nowadays, with recruiting starting so early, it's important to have cohesiveness amongst your staff. And to be honest, a staff you can sell to a family um, that, you know, nobody's going anywhere, uh, at least not in the foreseeable future. So what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of times we'd be in on a pitcher um, and uh, they'd say, well, your pitching coach is, you know, I heard he's going to retire in the next couple of years. And, you know, the kids were recruiting are freshmen and sophomores in high school. So basically they're, you know, they're doing the math in a couple, two, three years, this guy may not be there. And that's when my career is going to start. So how's this thing going to work out? And, um, you know, the other thing was obviously I wanted to be a head coach and, you know, I, I never handed my resume into Tennessee. I never went out and sought any head coaching job. Um, you know, but it's what I wanted to be. And so other people would use it in recruiting against us. And, you know, very rarely did we lose battles because of those things, but recruiting's hard enough. You don't want to have something standing in the way of you having success. So sure. we put together a coaching staff full of guys that, Hey, this is not a stepping stone. They're not dying to be a head coach. They're, they're not in line to be this, that, or the other. And, um, you know, with us having to hire a whole coaching staff, it ended up starting out with me and Frank Anderson, director of ops, strength coach, we had to hire everyone. So that was huge. It, hey, obviously we need to go get good players, but who's going to make these guys even better? Who's going to allow us to recruit, you know, in, in three or four years, you know, we're going to be judged, you know, SEC, like it or not, your job's on the line about every day after your first couple of years of coaching. Mm -hmm. So who's going to be the core staff that really is the rock for this program? And, and so that's kind of how it all unfolded in the early days. Oh, that's wonderful. And so I, one, one other thing that, that is an interesting dynamic is, so you get the head coaching job and then you've got a room full of, of guys that you didn't recruit and that you, right. that, that chose the school and didn't know you at all. And so, uh, I think that's another interesting dynamic that, that head coaches and even your entire staff has to work through because you've got to gain their trust. You didn't, you hadn't earned it yet. And so, it was that kind of a conversation of, okay, how, how do we get to know these guys? How do we make sure that, 
that we are, they know that we're here for their best interest or anything like that? Yeah, no, you, you say it that way. And now I'm like chastising myself. I think we're dumb. Everything was moving so fast. I don't think as a staff, we ever really mapped anything like that out. Okay. It was more of, Hey, what do we got the next day? What do we got? So I'll tell you what, I don't care who you are as a player or a coach. It's not the same when it's different. It's just mm-hmm. not. And I mean, you know, Andre Lipschitz was our best hitter. We inherited him. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and I have a quirky, great relationship. We tease each other, tease each other all the time. I think he'll make it to the big leagues. But there was a lot of days where he didn't really know where I was coming from. And I didn't really know where he was coming from early mm-hmm. on. And maybe somebody can manage that better and maybe they are better to, to kind of, kind of roadmap it out. Like you're speaking to it. Um, but we just kind of had to fight through that. He and I, but also all the other guys too. And, um, they were afraid of us our first year. They really were. <laughs> and part of it is we've brought in bigger and, and maybe even better personalities the last couple of years, mm-hmm. but. Our, our team that second year had so much more personality than the first year team. And a lot of it, I think, was our fault. I mean, we were new. And uh, again, maybe we could have implemented a better strategy to speed up the process. But part of it, too, is, is it's just out of your control. There, there's, there, there's, I'm sure there's something better out there than what I'm about to say. But to me, I don't know that there's anything I like more than that relationship with a guy that you recruited. You were there. From the ground up, you believed in them. You saw some things. You were there through the good times and bad, and then it clicks. Um, you know, and and that's a great feeling as a coach when there's that, you know, there's that totality of that whole relationship. Doesn't mean it can't be good when there's not, but that that whole progression is pretty tough to beat. Yeah, and you've got a lot of uh, of sweat equity in that too. Of of they're working for you, you're working for them, and. And again, I appreciate the honesty behind your answer because, I, again, I, I've never been a head coach, so I'm putting myself in <laughs> in some shoes that I have no idea about. So anytime that I get an answer that's different from mine, I'm learning from that. And so I, I do appreciate it, and I do I do love that answer. Uh, but but also, I, I, I like to hear about other coaches' standards or, like, values, uh, just different things because, again, you we could interview every Division One coach, every college coach around the country, and they would all have some similarities, but there would be differences based on their own personality. And so what are some of your standards that you have uh, and kind of what does what does being a, a Tennessee volunteer look like? Sure. Well, well for us, um, you know, our whole coaching staff is full of, uh, you know, guys that were kind of built from the ground up. Our first base coach was a hockey player that slowly became, you know, a right-handed hitter. Again, what's his exact position? Who knows? Mm-hmm. And he fought and fought, turned himself into Big 12 Player of the Year. Um, Frank Anderson's coaching career and really playing career started very humbly. I mean, he started out at Howard Junior College doing the laundry. Um, and then Josh Elander's kind of an exception. He's our recruiting coordinator. He was an All-American that I worked with at TCU, but he worked like a, a walk-on. So he was kind of that Kobe Bryant perfect combination of talent and attitude or work ethic that you want. And there's other guys, too, on our staff that fit that mold of basically kind of self-made, blue-collar approach, which I know everyone uses that cliche. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's really uh, there, there's really some 
some ties to that type of approach, I feel. And then two, if you combine that with looking at our program, when I was in high school, Tennessee was one of the top 20 programs under Coach Delmonico year in and year out. But if you go the past recent decade, um, we kind of got kicked to the bottom. I mean, that's just what it is. So, you know, started from the bottom type thing, you know, whether it's the Drake song or whatever, it requires a little bit of, hey, you got to be a little humble. Uh, no task is, is too small. And you probably got to work a little harder than the other guy because how else are we going to make up ground against, you know, Arkansas, where I came from? It's a bigger stadium with bigger crowd. Um, Florida's got better in-state talent as much as Tennessee's in-state talent has wowed me. Um, you know, it's, it's not going to be Florida anytime soon. And I could point out other examples, you know, Vanderbilt's kind of got their deal going. Um, and so how are we going to beat these teams? And I think it's going to kind of be with, um, you know, how the heck that I ended up playing at university doing so, um, there was a plan in place and it involved kind of doing some of those things I've already mentioned. Uh, so, so that's, that's kind of our formula there, I think. And uh, it, it applies to recruiting as well, which has been the common theme of, of all the answers is I, I think however you recruit, it's got to be tied into who you truly are, who your school is, and then how you're going to coach them when they actually show up. It, it, it maybe could be different, but I don't see it, you know, you know, all kind of being in sync or flowing the way that you want it to, if that's the case. Sure. Um, so in recruiting, that's kind of our approach too, is we don't, we maybe, uh, you know, don't have the national championship ring from five years ago to show off in the lobby. Uh, we do have some great tradition to show off, but um, it's kind of got to be more about here's who we are and what kind of life you're going to lead every day. And it's going to be really hard on you, but we also got a bunch of goofballs on staff that like to have fun. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have a blast doing it. So that's, you pretty much just heard my best recruiting sales pitch in, in two phrases right there. They're no, not very fun. good, but they're true. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. And again, the word grinder keeps coming up in my head whenever I'm I'm hearing you talk about your staff and then the guys that, that you're recruiting. And so uh, I think when I think of, of a grinder, I think of a guy who's real, really ready to work hard every single day and then compete. But I'm I'm always looking for things that I can add to practice plans, and I know this question comes up with everyone because we're all looking on on different comp- competitions that we can add to practices. But how do you guys create that that inner uh, that inner competition in in your practices? And and I know that that you're trying to recruit well, so every guy you have some depth that are that they're competing against each other every day. But are there any drills or any other just uh, any things that you guys do in practice that promote that every day? Well, one is is one that uh, applies to Tennessee or an SEC school because we've kind of got an unfair advantage. We've got so much help with the technology and, you know, managers and things like that. So just recording anything really helps. And, you know, you you can make up for lack of assistance or extra bodies and find a way to record things like even just hard contacts and batting practice, um, you know, because if you're you know, working out every day, uh, you know, stepping on the scale may not tell the whole, it's all that stuff, but the point is you got to have measurables and that, that is what analytics is in the big leagues. And it's why it's taking the world by storm instead of saying, man, this guy's better than this guy. Cause he's got a better fastball. Well, the radar gun tells you that in 1985, 
Well, now, you know, there's other things like movement and, you know, spin rate and things like that, that again, like the scale may not tell the complete story, but pretty dang close to it. So I think anytime you add in actual measurables and practice, it may take a few more minutes of planning or explaining to the team what we're doing, but it also might mean more quality reps instead of quantity, which is anybody's going to take that. I would like to think so. Um, And then the other thing too, is just, you know, it doesn't have to be, um, especially in our sport, it doesn't have to be a foaming at the mouth. Uh, if you lose, you got to run five miles or holy cow, everything's on the line. It could just be a fun, you know, uh, two second competition. I know one road team that came and hit on our field, they used that traveling rap Soto and, you know, they would just as a hitter step in and almost kind of like playing pig you know, say I'm going to have higher, uh, you know, launch angle or whatever it might be. And then the other guy would have to try and match him or beat him. Um, but you know, they were just having fun with it is kind of the point that the vision came to mind of them kind of hooting and hollering with it. And, um, you know, any, any guys a little closer to putting some value on the repetition so they get a lot out of it, but also being in that moment where, in a game, there's actually something on the line. So a lot of times when we have batting practice, it'll be a hard contact to stay or uh, you can't pull it or, you know, I'm just kind of pulling some stuff out. It depends on what we're working on. But it's if you want to stay in there and keep taking swings, you got to meet the criteria. And if not, you got to get out of the cage. And nobody likes getting out of the cage early. Right. Mm-hmm. Um so having, having some accountability or some measurables um, and then, uh, you know, a third thing, since I'm Italian and, and we do things in threes, accountability, measurables, and then a third thing just off the top would be, it can be a fun one. You know, we've done a couple of days where we got to call it a day because the NCAA time is up and we've done rock, paper, scissors just to see who, who wins. And uh, hell, they get into that more than they get into an SEC game sometimes. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I can, I can imagine. And you know, something that, something that, that I really, I, I've been trying to do a better job of lately, uh, just because like you mentioned there, especially at an SEC school, you've got so many different voices that could be in the player's heads and you've got so much different, uh, technology and you've got a lot of different statistics and analytics that, that are being thrown around and, and you see it on social media a lot and, and you see, uh, these different things that are important to different people. And, and so they, they're constantly being hit with information. And so what are some different steps that you may have taken to, to try and help them with that or simplify it for them or communicate with them about that stuff? Because it is important, but again, paralysis by analysis is a real thing too. And then you can't just completely dismiss it because again, there is some importance. So what, what's been your balance in, as far as just teaching what's important and then trying to let go some of the stuff that's not? Yeah, you, you know, I, I think uh, there's so much information there. You know, at our place in particular, we've got a literally a big league video room, um, and, and there's so much information out there now. And your guys can get on Twitter um, and see five different styles of hitting, and right. y- you know, they're around their phone a lot more than they're around us, and they're on it a lot more than they're listening to us too. So I think the best thing we had all all break. Um, it, it was during winter time and, uh, Max Scherzer came and spoke to our team. It was, it was great of him to do so. Cause I hate bothering those guys that, 
you know, get hit up all the time for tickets and stuff like that. And he volunteered to come speak to our team. And one of the phrases that they liked the best and that we brought up the most was he pointed, he's obviously an intense dude. He pointed at himself and was very fiery and saying, what works for me is something I had to find out myself and I'm still working on it every day. And what works for me is not what works for you. And he pointed at one of our best pitchers, Sean Hunley. I remember it very clear, but like I said, it was a very simple, uh, but fiery message that was sent to our guys that you have to come up with your own formula in order to make this thing work. And nobody is exactly the same. Um, and that goes for hitting, base running, uh, defense, whatever it might be. So, you know, you get bombarded with all this information and it's important for you to filter out what doesn't work. And to be honest with you, I tell them, like, I may come to you with something because I see it and it may make no sense to you or just doesn't feel right to you. You know, you just look me in the eye and say, yes, sir. And then it goes one ear, one out the other. Right. And, um, you know, Again, hopefully I say that the right way. I, I express it to our guys. I mean, at no mm -hmm. point, obviously, do any of our coaches need to be disrespected. But there's a fine line between trying to please your coach and, and, and disrespect. The most important person you have to please is yourself. And I can come at you and, and hell, if I want to cut a guy, I can cut a guy. There's no Make no bones about that. But ultimately, it, it's me throwing some standard ideas at you and work out philosophies and approaches at the plate, it's on you to decide what works best for you. Because, you know, I guarantee at some point there's been a guy who university of whatever has their eight other guys in the lineup all hitting this, this one way, and it's not working for that ninth guy. Um, and, and he's got to kind of adjust. And, right. you know, we, we had a superstar player with us over the course of our three years that he's always done things his way. And that's how he came into the program. And he kind of butted heads with some teammates and some coaches. And he had to find a way, okay, I am still going to do it my way, which we wanted him to, but I got to do it within the framework of the team. Um, so again, as long as there's respect and uh, there's things being done within the framework of the team, because that's ultimately how you're going to be the best player you can be is you're on a winning team. Right. Um, but you have to find out what works for you and it's different for every single guy. Cause we all got different DNA. No, I love that answer. And, and, and so leads me to one of my other questions that I've been asking lately, be, because we, we want that to the extent that you talked about uh, as far as them owning their career within the framework of the team. And so that was a, a fantastic example. Uh, but for our listeners who are, who are, who deal with have some guys that are like that have some guys that are just do what they're told have some guys that I mean just and we all have these players too you know and so how what is your best advice on how we can help our players to own their career because I love the Scherzer story and, and it sounds like he's literally taking everything that he can and experimenting with and then deciding what's best for him and for his for his career which it will obviously it doesn't affect the team um, uh, psychologically, but, but it, if he's winning on the field, it definitely helps the team out a ton. Um, but obviously he's doing that and, and then owning his career and the player you mentioned, he's doing that and, and you helped him to do that within the, the framework of the team. So what's your advice on how we can do that as coaches and, and just, just things that you've learned in the past that have helped. Right. Well, I'll tell you what, and I hope I hold myself to this. You kind of gave me an idea for something to do. 
and I don't know that this is, we'll get it done the best way, but there's a way to illustrate it to kids, in my opinion, is I bet I can come up with five examples of guys. Um, I, I could do a little internet research and say, look at how good of a high school career this guy had, and then he fell off the face of the earth. Or this guy had a great freshman year in college, and then he fell off the face of the earth, and so on and so forth. And then say, why? And, and for each guy, it's probably going to be different. But the bottom line is, this is a game you have to keep evolving. Sure. And if you don't, you're gone. I mean, especially, imagine if you're in pro ball, and, and kids may learn this the hard way. You and I know it's reality. In pro ball, if you have a year where you go backwards as a hitter, let's just say you're a hitter. You're not a real good defensive catcher. You know, you're not a stud shortstop. You're a hitter. You play one of the other positions. It's probably gone. It's probably over. I mean, unless you're a bonus baby, um, you know, there, there's always examples to it. You have to keep making progress or you're, you're not going to last in the organization or the program or the high school, whatever it might be. And different guys have been phased out or fizzle out at different times. And, you know, the one common answer is they stay in place. They did, they weren't, you know, they got to college where everyone's got a good breaking ball and they couldn't adjust to it. They got to pro ball where everyone's throwing good, you know, velocity at you. They couldn't hit good velo. Uh, or they weren't coachable. They could get away with it in high school because they were the superstar, but they got to college and they didn't accept coaching the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there can be a lot of things that go wrong, but the one, the one thing that can make things go right is if you just keep evolving. And you may run out of talent and the game tells you you got to hang it up at whatever level, but it won't be because um, you didn't fully capitalize on the abilities you've had. And I think there's some guys out there that that's the case. And, you know, Max, Max is the opposite example. I mean, I remember looking at his, his little email sheet. I want to, you know, go to your school. Here's my resume. He was a 500 pitcher till he was a senior in high school. I mean, he wasn't this phenomenon. And now he certainly is. So how did we get from point A to point B? He never stops learning. He never stops trying things. And then, yeah, ultimately... He loves Jim Leland. He compliments so many other coaches that he's had before. Um, but there ain't no way in the world anyone is going to mess up or get credit for Max Scherzer's, uh, you know, success. It's going to be Max, period. Right. And, and you're thinking, okay, uh, in high school, you've got, you may have a high school uh, head coach that is the same, but every summer you're probably going to have somebody different. Whenever you get to college, uh, you may go to a junior college uh, who's going to be a different hitting coach. And then you may go to a four-year school who's different. Uh, you may get drafted and every single year or maybe twice a year, you're going to have somebody that's that's a different coach than you. And so the only constant is you, right? And so we, I think right. that, that whenever we, we, we talk about kids being uncoachable, I think we, we're talking about them just not listening and sometimes it can be a negative connotation because they don't do exactly what we want them to do, which can also be a bad thing too. Uh, but just getting them to, to understand and, and to pay attention, I, I think, is, is, what, is what you're talking about too. Just paying attention to, to what your strengths are. Uh, and, and for even players today, I, I think being able to filter out noise quickly and, and then being respectful in a way that with other coaches who are like, Hey, I've tried this. And, and with all due respect, it just, it didn't work. And, and I'll show you and I'll, I'll give it a shot. But 
at the end of the day, I've, I've tried this before. And then, you know, for me as a coach, I'm going, okay, well, maybe we can try and check another box, right? Uh, but but that's that, that's right. rare. But I, I'm hoping I'm hoping that that it becomes more and more prevalent because the pa- you know the past generations they listened to their coach and they did everything that they said, and now it, it it kind of every generation almost does the opposite of the previous generation, and so it's just been an interesting dynamic to be able to see that play out. But you know it it, it is it is really neat and and I, I'm sure that that we've all had to make changes in our coaching careers, which which if they've been short or long. But but anyway, so let's say that you've got a player who you're trying to get to try something different. And at the end of the day, it's like, okay, John or Johnny, it, uh, it's just not working, man. And, and here's, here's the stats that I'm, that I'm trying to help you with. And, and it's just, we've given it time. It, it's not just bad luck, uh, but we need to change something. How do, how do you get players to buy into that? Because it, it that's a difficult conversation and it, it's something that they've thrown or swung, um, a, a certain way most of their entire life. And, then whenever you take that away, it's almost like taking a part of them away. But at the end of the day, it, it, we take things away because it wasn't working. So what does that conversation look like? And, and I'm sure you've had to have that sometimes because every recruit you get, you're like, oh, I really like these four things about them, but there's one thing that I may want to try and fix once they get on campus, but I have to have a conversation with them about that. So any advice on that? Right. Yeah, no, I got a very specific example that pops into my head and, and I hate okay. to backtrack because I think we're progressing well here, but no, yeah, man. the one thing I will say, cause, cause, uh, you never know if a high school kid pops in on this, on this podcast. Uh, I, I get guys all the time. You, you commit a kid. I mean, as many kids as we commit each year, odds are there's going to be a high school coaching change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a high level of turnover there and, um, you know, they'll say, well, I, you know, this guy's worse than the other guy, or, you know, I'm on this new travel team and this guy's, you know, different or it's good practice it's great practice because in pro ball there's a roving hitting instructor if you're good you'll keep moving up levels so i'm not saying it's bad they're bad coaches that you're going to have but you're going to have a lot of them so any practice you can have at different personalities and maybe one guy's more stubborn or gruff than another it's great practice and um you know that's something i always say to kids but i don't know if they're listening (laughs) which I, I hope they will because because it is. But, you know, same thing for, uh, you know, let's say they're at Tennessee and that me and me and them get along, but they've never had a coach come to them and say, we literally have to change the entire, you know, way you put start your hands or whatever. I think this group is visual learners that we have right now and ultimately going to the video is the easiest and best thing to show them. And, heck, we even have the uh, – Gosh, I'll, I'll sound ignorant because I'm, I haven't been around campus. I forget the edgetronic, the camera. I was searching mm-hmm. for the name of it that can do, you know, however many frames per mm-hmm. second. You know, we have the advantage or benefit of doing that. But even if you're just on the iPhone and slowing it down, um, I think you have to have visual proof and you have to show them. Here's what I see when I'm throwing you BP or I'm off to the side or when I keep seeing this fastball go by you. Um, here's what I'm seeing let me show it to you. And, um, you know, it, it's kind of hard to argue, you know, if you're in Vegas and the eye in the sky sees you're counting cards or cheating or something, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good example, but the mm-hmm. eye in the sky doesn't lie is what they say. It's kind of hard to dispute it. If the, there's hardcore evidence of it right in front of your face. So, um, I, I think anything visually for these guys, and then, 
you know, they all, like I said, are going to get on Twitter and they watch MLB and stuff like that. Um, I, I think it helps to have a big leaguer in mind that, you know, either does what you're trying to get a kid to do or, you know, is similar to that guy. Let's say you got a little shifty left-handed hitter outfielder guy um, that needs to keep the ball out of the air. Um, you know, maybe finding a guy in the big leagues that is similar so that they can kind of attach themselves that, to that a little bit. Um yeah. Makes sense. You know, I think any of that visual stuff helps. We had our guys during this pandemic. I, I've run out of material. <laughs> we I haven't, done, we haven't done a lot of the Zoom meetings. Yeah, I, I hope, you know, I'm just trying to let them live their life a little bit. And um, we've done some stuff I think is beneficial, but I, I've probably been as inactive as any coach in our league. I don't know if that's good or bad. But one thing we did do is, you know, hey, pick a big leaguer out and ask the coaches if you need help. A kid we got just now learning to play third base, and he's a right-handed hitter, Chapman from the A's. Just watch all of his highlights. Watch all of his stuff. And, um, you know, look at the Kobe Bryant-Michael Jordan relationship. That's a pretty pretty high-end example I'm throwing around, but at least it's an example, you know. No, I really like that. And, again, it's – it, it, it's anything that we can use as just not necessarily to sell the player on it, but it, it is kind of because again, you're, you're trying to get their behavior to change and I'm not going to change unless I see some evidence. I mean, why would I, because I'm comfortable doing this, but, but another, another thing that, that I really like to talk about too is uh, just the fall, because again, you guys led the country in runs in the spring. And so if we could go back to the fall and just talk about how you manage time restrictions, because, it, man, you guys are at such a disadvantage. And I know there are so many advantages that, that uh, NCAA coaches have, but time isn't really one of them. And so you've, you've really got to be creative with it. And so what, what was your uh, plan and process this fall on how to get the best out of your players? And what did you guys do? Well, I think competition was a huge theme and, um, you know, basically tried to preach that nobody's job was safe, which was true. I mean, we had about two guys we knew were going to be plugged in somewhere, but not necessarily where they were flexible. Like we talked about to play other positions. So um, I think that would tie into our other example. Hey, if you don't change and get better, you're not going to be in the lineup. Mm-hmm. The threat of playing time is, is the ultimate card that, that we have as coaches, especially if it's at a competitive level, um, you know, where you don't necessarily have to get every kid out there, but um, we, we have, you know, competition, was, was a big preacher. We have a built-in advantage uh, as a coaching staff. Most of us are single or do not have kids, and it's a pretty young staff. Um, so we were able to do a lot of one-on-one time. And rather than try and get where I'm maybe around every hitter uh, at some point and kind of doing it in a silly way, because NCAA really does hamstring you, where, okay, I got to get you, but I'm only going to get you for 10 or 15 minutes. There was a lot of days where I never even came across one guy, just relied on the coaches, the other coaches. This is your guy for the day. And then that required um, less time on the field out of us, but more time up in the office, like, okay, let's make sure we're on the same page for what you did. So we do what works for a guy. We're not telling a guy 17 different things. Um, so it was, it was kind of a balance of, the NCAA doesn't limit our time in the office or what time we can do stuff. Uh, so we have a lot of flexibility with our staff and, and that made it work in that fashion. The other thing was, like you know, that. you mentioned the run stat. 
Yeah. You mentioned the run stat. What would happen a lot of times is we felt comfortable with the lead and we'd let the guys come off the bench and play that weren't in the lineup that day. Well, there were days where guys that were on the bench were probably going to be the SEC starters once it all worked itself out. So um, just through some some hard work on their part once they got on campus and, and some quality recruiting, you know, Josh Helander's kind of really taken responsibility or full-time, um, you know, full-time uh, leading the charge in that area. Uh, we, we've kind of <laughs> been able to put almost two pretty good teams on the field. And so all those things are built into it. Now, if you were going to say, what's one thing you could really, really get done uh, if you weren't at a big-time program, you didn't have some built-in advantages like you're talking about. I think just getting kids to understand that all this launch angle and uh, everything else that's being thrown at you is about hitting the baseball the proper way. And the word proper replaces hard or feel, you know, how does, you know, effort makes you feel mm -hmm. good because you exerted all your effort. And it's like, man, I really got a hold of that one. Well, yeah, you did, but you just top spun it right at the third baseman's chest and he caught it, you know? Um, so a lot of it was about hitting the baseball proper way. And, and you know, they want to get into that analytical stuff. And, and I want to, too. I just don't want to get too extreme. So we kind of put it under the umbrella of, hey, the NCAA is not going to allow us to break down your swing like a big leaguer would. But let's go general and, and talk about the proper way that really every hitter hits a baseball. And then we're going to work on one-on-one -on -one stuff, like I mentioned before. Uh, one particular day, Jake Rucker is only going to go with Coach Kivett. And then Coach Elander did an unreal job with Zach Daniels, our guy who kind of emerged onto the scene this year. So we'll give you the one-on-one -on -one formula that will fall under that umbrella of this is pretty much a general idea of what good hitters do to hit the baseball the proper way. And if you hit it the proper way, the percentages are now in your favor. And at the end of the day, it's, um, it's a game of percentages that we're all playing. I mean, it's kind of like being in a casino. I don't have a gambling problem, by the way. I know I keep bringing up casinos. <laughs> have you been to Vegas lately? Is there something you need to tell us? No, no, I haven't. You know, we used to go there with TCU. We're in the Mountain West. You know, we were there, and those were kind of my first experiences were really for work. Um, but I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say I snuck over there a couple times for some fun since then, too. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so another thing that, that as a head coach, you, you have, you get the luxury of dealing with, because I know this is, this is not a fun issue, but you have to talk about playing time with the players because you've got, uh, you know, a 30 man roster, 20, 30, 30 division one. Is that right? 30? 35, 35, 35. That's, okay. So 35, you can play nine, uh, 10 if you count a pitcher. Right. And so you got also got to have conversations on the player's role and you've got to make sure that everyone owns that role, um, at least ideally, right? And so what, is, what does that look like whenever you're having that conversation with a player? Uh, let's take out everyday players because that's easy. Hey, you're going to be playing shortstop and batting three-hole and hopefully hitting uh, around 400 in the SEC, right? Uh, but for the guys that aren't playing right. every day, you, you still have to find uh, their motivation point and you still have to get them to buy in because you're going to need every all of those 35 guys on your bench at some point. Right. So what does a conversation right. look like for a guy who's not necessarily playing every day, whether that be a pitcher or a hitter? Well, I think they're all mindset things. They, the conversations start at the beginning of the year of, 
basically, what do you want your legacy to be when you leave this place? Because you're probably going to go back to your college more than you go back to your high school. Excuse me. But, you know, when a guy walks through the door that I coached, I, I say hi. And what pops into my head is, man, this guy hit 385. I really want to shake his hand before this guy that hit 305. The first thing that pops into your head when you see an old teammate or, you know, old former player is what kind of dude was this guy? It's kind of like when you meet someone famous, it's like, oh my gosh, you really got to meet, um, you know, who, whoever you got to meet Drake or somebody. And then the next thing that everyone wants to talk about is how, what, what kind of guy was he? Was he a jerk? Was he first class? You know, was he funny? Whatever it might be. And, and that's how people are going to remember you is, you know, what kind of teammate were you? Mm-hmm. Um, how'd you handle adverse circumstances and things like that? That's going to be your legacy you leave behind. And um, now we've been around long enough. Some guys come into our locker room and they come into our weight room and they've got real life examples in front of them that, that illustrate that. Um, but then it progresses a little bit more into individual circumstances up in the office. You talk and I, I've learned the hard way and coach Van Horn and coach Jorn, who was the pitching coach at Arkansas when I was there, mm-hmm. they both really got me to understand the value of black and white to players as opposed to gray areas or trying to massage relationships and stuff like that. Just, this is what it is, you know? And, and uh, I think being really black and white helps. The other thing is alleviating two big dark clouds that can hang over a player's head. And I know this as well as anybody as a guy that came off the bench is don't ever let mom and dad or yourself say, when am I going to get my chance? Because, Everyone knows when I say that, you're talking about when am I going to get in a game? Mm-hmm. Your chance is every day. It's, it's when you're doing stretching, when you're lifting, when you're th- playing catch, um, when you're taking BP. Those are all opportunities. Those opportunities might lead to some better ones. It's a little cooler to hit against LSU, you know, on a home Friday night baseball game. But that's not the only time you're being evaluated as a player it's every day you're being evaluated every day you have an opportunity and you need to take advantage of those. And then the other thing is when you do get your opportunity. And again, I'm saying it in quotes like a player would, because mm-hmm. a lot of them are confused. They think an opportunity has to be on game day. Um, but when you do get a chance in a game, it, it's not about what you do. It's about how you do it. Just because we go scout you and you get a base hit, that doesn't necessarily mean it was a good day for you or we're going to evaluate you as a guy we got to give a scholarship. And just because you pinch hit in the ninth inning in a game and you get a base hit, that doesn't necessarily mean we saw things that make us believe that you can be the guy the next weekend in a tie game. Uh, it's more about how you do it. And, you know, it can work the opposite. We, well, I should say I, pinch hit our best bunner on the team this year. He ended up striking out. And to be honest with you, it probably cost us the game. We'll go back and look at video and it's, it's probably statute of limitations. The sec can't find me. (laughs) Plus they don't know what game I'm talking about, (laughs) but go back and watch the video and the umpire. I mean, these calls, I don't know how many, they were in the other batters box. I can promise you that we had Mm -hmm. track man, you know, Um, but it was brutal. And so, Having seen that, I told Austin, hey, you know, you just got to find a way to get it done, dude. But those circumstances were ridiculous. 
next time that situation comes up, you're our guy. And I meant it. And it was because of the way it went down, not necessarily what went down, if that yeah, makes I like sense. That. No, I really like that a lot. And, and I think that, that that comes with, you know, with uh, you having a feel for your team too. And, and that's something that he probably needed to hear. And, and again, it's, it's you're fighting for your team there, which, which I think is, is a huge deal. Uh, for, for, you know, right. if we think about it from the eyes of the player, anytime that our head coach comes and tells us in a bad situation like that, that, Hey man, I got your back. I love you. You were the right man, the right spot. It's just, we, you know, this or that. So I really like that. And, and another thing that I've got some quick hitters here before you go, but one thing that always comes up for our young coaches that are listening, uh, we're, we're trying to, uh, you know, impart your wisdom upon them. And so what was one of the biggest lessons you learned as a young coach and what advice would you give them? You know, as a young coach, I think for me, um, it, it's a game where it's good to have passion. And I don't know if I'm using my vocabulary the right way, but it's good to have passion, but emotion uh, when it spills into emotion, it, it can really uh, deter you from things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, holding a grudge in recruiting or holding a grudge against your superiors. Um, man, I, I don't like that I got reprimanded or the head coach told me I need to do this better. I, I took it personal and it hurt my feelings and now I'm pissed at him and I, you know, drive off fast or whatever it might be. Um, as a young guy that's ambitious, you just got more juice to you. And that's a good thing, but it's channeling in the right direction is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. And look at all the coaches like John Cohen is now the athletic director at Mississippi state. When he was at Missouri, where I also worked, I, I worked literally in the office that he filled a few years prior. Those guys thought he was crazy and he is crazy because he's so dang smart and he's very passionate, but, I think as he got older, and if you check his track record, I'm not knocking him because it's ridiculous how well he won at every place that he ever was. But as he got a little deeper into his career, he started talking to me about basically kind of how he started to loosen things up and not stress some things that weren't as important so much. And, you know, um, just making adjustments really as he, as he got experience. Sure. And it's kind of the same story you hear from every coach. I mean, as they get older, they worry less about, you know, and so if everyone's going to say that by the time they're 40 or 45 or 50, why not say it as a 25 year old, learn from your brother's mistakes um, or or just your brother's experience and put your own spin on it at a young age. I I think that can be incredibly valuable. So Mm -hmm. a lot of times I look back and, you know, the Italian, you know, temper got, got (laughs) punched. Or even if it wasn't like a fiery moment, it was just holding a grudge or something. It just interferes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, look at, you know, Bobby Cox, he got thrown out as many games as anybody for the Braves, but 90% of the time he's relaxed and he's allowing his brain to think through situations and and act rationally instead of emotionally. Sure. No, and and I don't mean to hijack the mic here, but I've been thinking a lot about, uh, that question and not necessarily from a young coach to uh, uh, or from an older coach to a younger coach, but just for more of a wisdom perspective. And I think that, and this is my opinion and maybe, maybe you can tell me if I'm off here, but I think that we have to go through those experiences and start to define those moments for us. And actually over time we figure out if those are actually important or not. 
And so I, I think that that's, that's so true. What you said of over time, they started making things more lax because they realized they weren't as important as they thought that they were. But as a young coach, you have to also decide and you have to experiment on what you truly believe in. And then I think over time it, it you, you decide whether that is actually true or you can give it a little slack here and there uh, and where to tighten up here and there too. And that's just my spin on it. I, I don't know if, if that if that is something that, that you think as well, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. No, on and, and no, I think it's dead on. And if you think about it, you and I kind of ping, ping pong back and forth on that's what a player has to do. And yeah, it's so kind of one and the same. I, I mean, um, you know, probably when you're going to hit your peak as a player or as a coach is when your your body and mind um, kind of come together at, at that pinnacle moment where you've you've fought through some things on how to mm-hmm. how to do certain things and and failure. You know, as the great Ken Revizzo talked about it a lot. Um, failure adversity is a fertilizer, mm-hmm. and it's it's kind of hard to grow your best grass without any fertilizer. Sure. So the one thing I will say that is, is probably better advice for any young coaches is, is in combination with this, because if you're doing it, uh, an older coach will work with you more. And the point I'm, I'm getting at is if you're a younger coach and your only approach every day, when you come to the field or the office is to make life easier on the other guys, you'll go places. Mm-hmm. And that's a very, very simple Great. formula, but especially for a volunteer coach, you know, volunteer, what, what are you supposed to do? And it's, it's kind of a bad look if you're the guy yelling at the ump like I was at times and stuff <laughs> like that. I mean, as great as some of those guys will end up being, um, when you're a volunteer, you're not the head coach. Let's put it that way. So you, you got to be a little bit humble and you got to put everyone else's needs in front of yours. And those are the guys that will get you jobs or continue to hire you if you put their lives in front of yours and just how do I make life easier on this recruiting coordinator, you know, or this head coach, or I'm not the infield coach, but if this guy needs me to hit balls to the third baseman so he can stand next to him and direct them or coach him, you know, I've made life easier on him. So when I do get emotional or I do something foolish, um, you know, cause I am young they'll overlook that because at the end of the day, Hey, it's a young guy that's got to learn. And he's also a guy I want around because he's there to get me lunch. He's there to hit extra fungos. He makes my life easier. I really like that. So another question, one of my favorite questions, just because I think it's, it's fairly practical is what is something that you guys do in practice that your players love? So you show up uh, one day and and you're like, Hey guys, we're going to do this today, this drill, because you know, they're going to love it. Uh, what is, what is that? And, ha- and ha- let us steal it from you, if you don't mind. Yeah. Yeah. You're pu- putting me on the spot, man. I wish we were going over this <laughs> in in the spring. Um, you know, I, I think, I think the thing they really enjoy more than anything, and this is not fancy and it, it's, it's not that exciting is the just one-on-one pitcher versus hitter. Like if they know they're going to have an opportunity to get, and at bat, because you, you can't scrimmage every day based on time and mm-hmm. also the, the innings that you need to fulfill to have an actual scrimmage with a pitcher's arm. But uh, we, we've kind of conceded the fact that, hey, it's not going to flow every day where we can have a nice and tidy nine-inning scrimmage. So, But there may be a pitcher that's working on a changeup that needs to throw. And, I mean, the pitchers love it. 
because it, it's the number one thing you can do to develop and to compete. And then that same thing for a hitter, but th- they love it. Uh, and, and they'll fight over, you know, who gets at bats and they'll beg me and things like that. So while, while that's not kind of the most creative or the, you know, the, uh, the thing that gets them real giddy, um, that's the thing they love the most is when we can mix in those actual game repetitions uh, mm-hmm. because we only get 56 game days in the spring and we probably get, um, you know, 20 fall scrimmages in it. That's a great, that's an ideal fall. Normally mm-hmm. it's nowhere near that many. Sure. No, I love that. And then finally, uh, for anyone that, that would like to hear some of your favorite books or resources, what are some that have sh- uh, that have changed or shaped your coaching career? And and, um, and I'll, I'll put these in the show notes for those listening as well. But what are a few books, resources, classes, or even people that have, that have helped you throughout your career and, and that we could reach out to and, and pick their brains about? Sure. Um, well, Ken Ravizza, uh, I mentioned earlier, is kind of, the, in my opinion, uh, the godfather of the mental game of baseball. And he wrote Heads Up Baseball. And it's a book that reads kind of almost at a third or fourth grade level. I mean, it's such an easy read, which I like. There's pictures in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I tell guys all the time, there's no way you want to be a great player if you haven't read this book. It's too easy. It's too comprehensive. It covers pitching, hitting, base running, you name it. Um, so I, I think you should do it. And, and then there, there's another one that I really like. Again, because of its style, you don't have to read the whole thing from start to finish. You can just open it up and pull a chapter out, and it's called Mind Gym. Um, and, and I know that's one that uh, our players have kind of recommended that. And I can tell when they latch on to a recommendation and they don't. And, and that's one that they've, they've really liked. And then, you know, the, the Joe Rogan podcast with David Goggins is really good. Um, that, that's one that our players like the most and they talked about the most, but the one that I like the best, um, I'll have to send you the name is, uh, uh, Russell Wilson's, uh, mental game coach. And he also worked with Saban at Alabama. He's worked Trevor at a Moad. ton of places. Yeah. Trevor Moad, uh, his, he had two podcasts that were very similar. He's got a YouTube video. It just depends, you know, which one you want to pull. He's like a lot of great coaches and mental game guys. They say the same thing over and over. If you listen to him and Goggins is kind of like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of, to me, illustrates how important simplicity is and mastering what you got. I mean, Vince Lombardi, you know, they always talked about that. Those Packer teams only had like four offensive plays, but you couldn't stop them because they had them down so good. And, um, you know, while Trevor Moad has a bunch of different things, I don't have one that's my favorite. I just really like his overall message. And he's got a similar background where he grew up in a household that, that started, you know, he started at a young age kind of a, adopting this philosophy of how important mentality is. Right. Yeah, his dad was a was a mental game coach, and, and he's got a really, really good book. Uh, it's called It Takes What It Takes, and that, that came out, I think, last month. And, and I went through it, and it's really good. If, coach, if you like that, if you like him, I think you'd like that book. But uh, I'm going to open up the mic yeah, I for cheated. you. I cheated. I cheated and did the audio book. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hey, that's, that's whatever you got to do. Uh, but I'm going to open up the mic for you just as a, as a kind of uh, you know thankful farewell to you. And, and again, I appreciate your time. And I know that, that our listeners did too. And, and they're probably furiously writing down notes as we speak. But is there anything else that you'd like to tell them before you go? 
No, just to, you know, fully, fully jump in or dive into maybe the better way to say it, whatever it is you're passionate about. And, um, I certainly don't have any more answers than the next guy. I kind of had a freak set of occurrences that put me in a really good position to have success. I mean, I don't know many coaches that have only worked at power five schools. And, uh, I don't say that in a braggadocious way because I didn't deserve that job at Missouri. I was so young. I just kind of happened to fit the criteria and was already there. Uh, so it all worked out in a great way. But if you look at most of the people that are successful at what they do, um, yeah, they might have a couple hobbies or things, uh, that you would call them a Renaissance man, but really they dive in 100% into what they're really passionate about and pour everything they got into it. And it's hard not to have some level of success if that's how invested you are in something. Um, and, and it may not be as, uh, you know, productive or as financially wealthy, you know, as, as another guy that's doing what you're doing, but it's kind of all about, you know, making yourself happy. And, um, I think each of us has the ability to do that. If we know what, what does that for us and we, we fully dive in. Thank you for listening to ahead of the curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.